Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. One of the striking things about the coronavirus pandemic is just how ill-prepared we were for it. But how do you prepare society for a pandemic? Is it about predicting the future? Or is it about being as ready as you can for many different outcomes? Margaret Heffernan is a businesswoman, author and public speaker who writes about leadership and critical thinking. Her latest book, Uncharted, How to Map the Future, was published in February this year. The timing was uncanny because in the book, Margaret uses the example of pandemics to talk about how forecasting the future can lead us astray. What makes this very difficult for policymakers and for all of us living through it is we want a degree of certainty, but it just isn't possible. There are too many unknowns. On today's podcast, I talked to Margaret about some of her ideas, like how we should face up to the limitations of predicting the future and why it might instead be better to build resilience in our society instead of trying to eradicate uncertainty. We have to, if you like, negotiate a different relationship with uncertainty and think about, okay, what's the full range of things that could happen? And of those, which of them actually might be quite positive? Margaret, you've just written a book, much of which is focused on how we cannot forecast the future. But your book does just that by describing major disasters, including pandemics, doesn't it? Yes, and I I would... I must say instantly that um, I absolutely did not forecast that this would happen with this book. Um, I mean, I think the thing that's really interesting is that epidemics are always with us. And it's only, I think, in recent years that we've kind of forgotten that they can and do happen all over the world all the time. And I think to some degree, you know, perhaps we got a little complacent thinking, well, epidemics are something are things that happen over there, you know, whether in Asia or in Africa or whatever, they don't happen to us. And boy, have we had a lesson to put us right. Margaret, in the book, uh, Richard Hatchett of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness tells you there is no profile of an epidemic. And in essence, he's saying that's because of the differences between countries. But yet all of the decisions we've made in Ireland have been based on reducing incidence of the disease by making decisions based on what we project will happen if we don't make those decisions. Right. But I think what's interesting is I think that, you know, many countries around the world have tried very hard to make good policy decisions based on good science. But I've been interested, you know, as I follow this, of course, by people adopting this curious phrase of the science. What does the science say? And the truth is that the science always says many things, some of them contradictory. And so while we've been sometimes quite harsh on our politicians, you know, and sometimes that's been deserved, I think we've also been inclined to think that in a situation like this, that there is some incontrovertibly right answer. And I think the truth is that because there is no profile of an epidemic, that they are all different and they play out differently in different cultures and different geographies, we can make the best decisions that we can on the knowledge that we have, but we have to recognize we're still dealing with a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity. 
I mean, for example, in, here in the UK, we don't actually know how many people have died of COVID-19. We know how many people died in hospitals. We probably know how many people died in um, care homes. But we don't can't be absolutely certain in the case of, you know, some elderly people who appeared to catch a cold and died. We have no idea how many people have had the disease, right? Because unless they went to hospital or got treatment from a GP, they will just have stayed at home and weathered it and recovered. So even the most basic data that we have is very ambiguous. And a lot of the understanding of really what's been going on, we won't have for a year, two years, three years. So, you know, we have to, of course, and policymakers have to get the very best data they can and the very best advice they can. But I think we as citizens have to acknowledge that even that is going to have elements of ambiguity in it, which are absolutely ineradicable. We can't get rid of the uncertainty when we're dealing with a unique event. Furthermore, you you, you seem to be suggesting that um, because we're creating the idea that there is certainty, um, we are taking even greater risks with that. So we have been modelling um, like crazy about coronavirus um, to try and project what is going to happen, what is likely to happen. But but you were saying this is a kind of a dangerous activity. So, you know, the way that um, epidemiologists typically do this is they'll put some kind of probability rating against predictions. I mean, anybody in the forecasting business will do that, which is they may say there's a higher likelihood of this happening than that happening. But what we can't do is absolutely precise predictions of exactly what's going to happen. And the people who study forecasting as a kind of process um, readily acknowledge that forecasts are, all forecasters get it wrong sometimes, and that no forecast is 100% certain until after the event has happened. So I think what makes this very difficult for policymakers and for all of us living through it is we want a degree of certainty, but it just isn't possible. There are too many unknowns. And you know, we don't, we can't predict how every single person is going to behave, how seriously they'll obey or flaunt the rules. And because we don't know how every individual is going to behave, we can't predict with any ac real accuracy what's going to be the consequence. So we make the best decisions we can, but I think the public export expectation that these will be rock solid and that it's possible in a situation like this to pull certain levers with certain guaranteed outcome. I think as much as we'd love that kind of certainty, we just, we can't have it. There are just, as I say, there are just too many unknowns. Your book, of course, is not specifically about epidemics. It's, it's more about leadership and, and business. But epidemics feature strongly because they make the point uh, that is behind your, your thesis, which is that they are generally certain, but specifically ambiguous. Explain that to us. 
Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote about epidemics for several reasons. One is because, um, you know, in the first chapter, I wrote about the founding fathers of forecasting. And I was kind of amazed and intrigued to discover that all of them had been diagnosed. This is at the end of the 19th century. They'd been diagnosed with tuberculosis. Now, at, to, at the time, tuberculosis was the single greatest cause of death. Uh, and almost everybody was known to be infected with it. But tuberculosis is a, was a, a very ambiguous a diagnosis because having it meant that you were at risk, but you had no idea whether you would live a long life and never really suffer any symptoms or whether you know, you'd catch, catch cold tomorrow and be dead in a week. So, it, you know, so epidemics are a sort of fantastic way of describing and discussing the kinds of uncertainties that are all, are all around us in life. So, for example, the Bank of England has said uh, that it knows there will be future banking crashes, but it doesn't know when or where or what will trigger it. Um, we know that climate change is a real thing that is really happening but we can't predict which areas are going to flood next year, which crops will be lost or which forests might catch fire. So in these very complex systems where there are often hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of factors influencing them, there's a high degree of ambiguity in terms of how they all interact. And the same is true in an epidemic, which is, how it develops depends hugely on every single de uh, decision that every individual makes and who they contact and how frequently they contact, how many people. And because you can't know for certain about every individual's decisions, you can't map the future with precision. And I think that, you know, what's interesting about this is I think in the last 20 years or so, technology has really tried to persuade us that we can predict almost everything in life. I mean, after all, our GPS will tell us, you know, you'll get, I'll get from here to my nearest post office in seven minutes if I'm driving. Well, most of the time, that's right. But if, um, you know, from here to the post office is a narrow lane, if a tanker breaks down on that lane, I won't get there in seven minutes. If I get a flat tire, I won't get there in seven minutes. It's impossible to predict these random events. So we can have sort of general knowledge. In general, that's how long the journey takes. But whether that will be true for me today remains somewhat uncertain. And these uncertainties run all through life. And one of the big arguments in my book is that in many, in many cases, the uncertainty shows that there are all kinds of things that could happen, and those aren't all terrifying. Many of them are really very positive. So I think we have to, if you like, negotiate a different relationship with uncertainty and think about, okay, what's the full range of things that could happen? And of those, which of them actually might be quite positive? Margaret, we often strive towards efficiency uh, in, in our working lives. And you argue that the efficiency model is not conducive to dealing with coronavirus. Why is that? Well, you know, one of the reasons that we've seen huge um, problems with um, PPE 
and with pure oxygen and some of the and ventilators and some of the equipment that we need to deal with COVID-19 is because we have tended to run our institutions, specifically in the UK, we've definitely been running the NHS for at least 10 years now with a BDI on maximum efficiency. And what that means is we've tried to standardize everything and we've tried to make everything as cheap and as fast as we can. And that's why sadly here and in many parts of the world, there hasn't been enough PPE available and there haven't been enough ventilators available and there haven't been enough critical care beds. In the NHS here, for example, the occupancy rate of critical care units was running at about 93%. Now that looks incredibly efficient, you know, almost no waste. But the truth is the minute the epidemic struck, it meant we had absolutely no capacity to adjust. And the difficulty with efficiency is it's fantastic with things that you can absolutely control, for example, like an assembly line. But wherever there are things that you can't completely control, there are going to be surprises, unexpected things that happen. And then you really need a margin for error. And in running healthcare systems with no margin for error, we've been too efficient and we've had systems that had, had no robustness, no capacity to be flexible or adaptive. And you can see this you know, in a lot of supply chains you know, in the first couple of weeks of the epidemic here, you couldn't get hand sanitizer anywhere because, well, the stores were only stocking exactly what they predicted they would need at that time of the year, but their prediction was wrong. And so in, in, in situations where we don't have total control, we have uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, you need to have a little bit of extra everything just to be sure, just in case, you need to take up that full capacity. And Richard Hatchett, as you as you mentioned earlier, you know, who runs and set up, in fact, the, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, um, he has this, I think, very beautiful model that says, you know, in an epidemic, there are all kinds of things you have to do just in case. You have to start developing vaccines before you need them. You have to start developing relationships between all the different services that are involved in an epidemic. You have to develop those relationships ahead of time, even though you may never need all of them. You have to do this extra work just in case. And then he says there are certain things that you can do with a BDI to efficiency. You know, when you once you've got a vaccine, of course, you can control the manufacturing and you want to do that as fast and as cheaply as possible. But you have to be able to distinguish between the things where you can be just in time, super efficient, and the areas where you've got to do work just in case. You know, and one of the kind of untold stories of this epidemic, I think is that um, you know, the, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness started in 2016 and in 2017, it started working developing uh, vaccines for coronavirus, which means we did not, thank goodness, go into this with nothing. And obviously if we had had more lead time, we'd have been even better prepared. You know, the really shocking and frightening news, well, not news, but known statistic is 
the fastest we've ever developed a successful vaccine has been in four years. And the average time required to develop a successful vaccine is 10 years. And some diseases like AIDS, where we've been trying to develop a vaccine for the last 25 years, we still haven't succeeded. So as much as everybody has, I think has done the right thing to throw all the resources we've got trying to develop this vaccine, there is no certainty that it will emerge in the next year or two or three. Margaret, so much of our leadership culture is built on creating efficiency, maximizing output, minimizing costs, maximizing profit and so on. What kind of values should we be replacing that with? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to replace the kind of um, sense of control over everything that efficiency implies. We have to replace that with some humility. I think we have to come to terms with uncertainty and acknowledge that, you know, it, it exists not because we're stupid, but because it's absolutely in side the complex systems on which our lives are based. So we have to start with some humility. We have to acknowledge that there are all kinds of things that can happen and might happen and be prepared to invest in those just in case because the impact of these likely events is so huge. So we have to measure governments, not just by what they do for the short term, but how well they're preparing our countries for the longer term. And this has, you know, become quite unfashionable because politicians run for pretty short terms of office and they want to be able to show in almost magically short timelines how much success that they've created. And we as voters rarely applaud them for doing good long-term planning. So I think we have to accept uncertainty, demand that our governments do more long-term planning around things that will have a huge impact. That means they have to be much more aggressive and active on the climate change front in exactly the same way that they became too late, but became aggressive in making the banks be better prepared for uncertainty and sudden shocks, which is they made the banks hold more capital so that if there was suddenly a banking crisis, they wouldn't fall over. We have to do the same thing in terms of how we're thinking about the future future of climate change. We have to do the same thing in terms of future epidemics. And we have to recognize that being the cheapest, fastest government on earth is no claim to fame. And I think that that's true for leaders in any position, you know, actually whether you're running, you know, a news agency or whether you're running a a multinational corporation, you know, you have to have extra funds, extra loyalty, extra trust in people if you're going to be prepared for these shocks. And of course, one of the big themes in my book is that what you know definitely cash helps you in a crisis but one of the other things that is invaluable in a crisis are well-established deep relationships of trust generosity and reciprocity and 
it's very clear that organizations that go into a crisis with those things well entrenched in their cultures come out with their reputations enhanced. And I think, again, this sort of mood we've had in the last 10 years, which is, well, let's do everything short term. Let's not even employ people. Let's just have a gig economy. We have to recognize that in a crisis, you have lots of people who work for you who don't care about you and customers who don't care about them. And that all of this super accelerated short term thinking really frays the social fabric. And we need to think, I think, much more deeply about. How do we do better than that? How do we create societies and organizations and companies and communities that are really robust because they know each other, they care about each other, they'll pitch in when times are hard, and they have some slack in the system that will help them? We tend to think of history as repeating itself, there being kind of nothing new under the sun and so on. But you don't subscribe to that theory. No, I absolutely don't. And what's even more interesting is, you know, professional historians absolutely don't. Um, you know, what they argue is we tend to think of uh, what the historian Michael Howard called nursery history, which is, you know, the good guys always lose or, you know, in the UK that, you know, everything is a reenactment of Churchill and the Second World War. Um, and we reach for sort of analogies and metaphors um, because we try to simplify what we see happening around us. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really one of my favorite parts in the book is that, you know, in Ireland in the 1980s, you had a whole group of magnificent historians who started writing about Irish history in a much more thoughtful, much more complex way. And one of, one of the historians who was part of this movement, um, the historian Roy Foster, started writing history, he said, as if the people making it didn't know what was going next, because they didn't know what was going to happen next. And out of that came, I think, in a way, a much more dignified history in which people did their best and in which change was possible. And I think that shifting that, shifting to that idea from, if you like, the sort of ancient myth of people who were doomed always to be downtrodden, you know, is a really fundamental shift in Irish identity in terms of starting to be able to think of one's nation, nationality and nation as much more creative, constructive, productive, and progressive. And it's, you know, if you think that history repeats itself, then you are doomed if you've had a long, sad, tragic history. And if you think you're doomed, you kind of stay doomed. But when you start to read history as shifting sands of change and contingency, then all kinds of things become possible, at which point you're in a much better state politically and mentally to make more positive, progressive, adventurous decisions, as it seems to me the Good Friday Agreement has been, and many other decisions made by the Republic have been. You're interested in scenario planning. How is that different from forecasting? Well, scenario planning um, starts by embracing uncertainty and saying, look, we don't know what the future is going to be. There are all kinds of possible outcomes. 
So let's dig deep and think about what are the most likely range of possible futures. And the goal of doing that is not having done that to choose one, but to say with each of these scenarios, what would we do? And so it's a fantastic way of developing, if you like, preparedness, of thinking, okay, so if the first scenario took place, we would want to have done the following things to brace ourselves against it. If the second more cheerful scenario happened, we would want to have invested more in these certain areas. Or if the, you know, if the third scenario turned out to be rather confusing and volatile, you know, we would want now to reinforce these kinds of institutions. And so what it does is it creates a kind of menu of options, many of which can be done ahead of time just in case. And probably, the, you know, one of the most famous stories of scenario planning, it was in the 1970s, Shell, which was uh, one of the companies that most uh, conscientiously developed scenario planning, asked themselves what would happen in the, if the oil price fell. And at the time, this was considered ridiculous. They were laughed at for doing it because everybody said it's a natural resource. There's a finite amount of it. So, of course, the less there is, the higher the price will be. And they said, well, never mind. <laughs> Let's just work out anyway. If the oil price, price fell, what would we wish we had been doing now? And they saw all sorts of things that they would have done to make their operations less costly. And then, lo and behold, several years later, the oil price did fall. All of them, their competitors scrambled to kind of keep alive, and Shell was sitting there in a very, very strong position. And so scenario planning is really designed not to predict the future, but to say, here are all the possibilities. Here are all the things you could do to protect yourself against them. So which of these can you actually afford and should you do today? And I think so that I think they're a fantastic mode of long-term planning, which is not throwing darts at a dartboard, but thinking through in some really gritty but imaginative detail what the possible futures in front of us are. And, you know, when you come back to the, um, the coronavirus epidemic, we don't know if there will be a second spike. We don't know if there's going to be a vaccine. We don't know uh, if this will become a kind of seasonal occurrence. So we could and we should right now be thinking through those scenarios and thinking with each one, if that turned out to be the case, what would we wish we had been doing today to prepare for it? And thinking how much of that can we actually do right now so that we aren't caught, caught on the hop again? Because being surprised once, fair enough, maybe there's some reasons. But if we're caught by surprise by something like this again, it will be because we failed to learn the lessons of it. We're being asked to rely on our resilience through this crisis. How do we find and develop our collective and individual resilience? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's really fundamental here is social resilience which depends fundamental, fundamentally on social capital. And social capital 
is a concept that came out of sociology, really, when um, sociologists looked at communities that were undergoing stress and observed that some parts of the community did really well and some did really badly, even though they were undergoing the same stress. And they wanted to know what the difference was. And so they did lots of research. And what they discovered was that in the resilient communities, people really knew each other. And in the less resilient communities, they really didn't. And it's sort of interesting because I was living in London, in Brixton, in the 1980s, where in Brixton there were quite a lot of race riots. And I saw this right in front of me, which is the street that I lived on was stayed very safe and clean and um, healthy. And the street right next to me, parallel to me, was a crime-ridden, full of graffiti, full of uh, rubbish and litter, and it wasn't safe to walk down. And the difference between these two streets is on my street, everybody knew their neighbor. And, you know, we didn't know each other intimately. We weren't in and out of each other's houses every day, but we kind of kept an eye on each other. You know, somebody's door was open a crack. We'd check that that was okay. If a kid left their bicycle out in the street, and it was nightfall, somebody would take it in and just, you know, put a note through the door saying, I've got, you know, Mike's bike. And so a really fundamental part of, of social resilience is how well people know each other. And I think it's been quite striking, certainly here in the UK over the last 20 years, how far that's frayed. Everybody's too busy. You know, the village I'm in, which is a beautiful small village, you know, people get up early, they go to work, they're at work till quite late. We only see each other in the summer, right? When people are, at, you know, might be out and about, but we never see each other in the winter because we leave in the dark, we come home in the dark and we, you know, the rest of the time we're at home. So, so actually people have got to know each other progressively less and less. And this really costs a society when this happens. It may look efficient. Everybody's zooming off to work to you know, maximize GDP, but actually we're minimizing the social fabric. And so every organization I've studied, you know, whether it's a country or a community or a company, it's very clear that what gets people through crises is each other, knowing each other, caring about each other. And it's why you know, I started um, when the crisis just started, I set up a delivery service for our local farm shop because what that meant is um, the farm shop could deliver to people who are isolated. The isolated people could be fed and see at least one friendly face a day. And the farm shop would um, have to lose fewer workers because they had more business. And honestly, you know, I mean, I've run big companies in my life and done all sorts of fancy things. Honestly, this is one of the most rewarding things I've ever done getting to see people and just, you know, just chatting to them at a distance, bringing them food really safely. We're all volunteers, all the people of, of, you know, in my team who do this, but people love doing it. They love being helpful. They love being helped. And, you know, my hope is that when the, when the epidemic dies down, we don't lose sight of this because it has meant that everybody in our village knows each other better and has had an opportunity to express that we care about each other. Margaret, as you're based in the UK, I have to ask you uh, about a, a story that, that's uh, 
pretty big at the moment. Um, Boris Johnson's advisor, Dominic Cummings, is is in the news, of course, for 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 breaking uh, lockdown and and under quite a lot of pressure, uh, I'd imagine, as a result. Um, how important is leading by example in the midst of a crisis? I think leading by example is everything. You know, you can be as eloquent as you like. Nobody believes you until they see what you do, because what you do is who you are. And I think this is a really shabby scandal. I mean, people have made huge sacrifices in order to follow the guidelines. You know, they've sacrificed seeing family members whom they worry about and miss, you know, deeply. My mother-in-law who lives with us, you know, looks after her grandson who's in London and they, she pines for him. And I think to have a senior member of government who somehow thinks, well, it doesn't quite apply to him, you know, and who's a little nice about the strict legality around it, and to have that person protected and defended by the prime minister, I think looks really shabby. And I think it sends a message that, well, don't worry too much about the guidelines. You know, you can just kind of use your own common sense. And actually that's, you know, that's not what they were saying. And it's not actually what got the number of infections down. So I think it's a really, I think it's a very sad and shabby story. And I'm sure that, you know, Dominic Cummings wanted his kids to have proper childcare. But what that means is he was thinking about himself and not about others. And leadership is all about thinking about others, not thinking about oneself. And I think that, you know, if Boris Johnson is defending him because he needs him, then he too is just thinking about himself and not about the quality of leadership that a country needs, not just in times of crisis, but at any moment. And I think, you know, we're living through a, a pretty you know, terrible age in which we do have a lot of leaders who seem concerned exclusively for themselves, their own popularity and celebrity, and seem very little concerned for the people uh, to whom really they are responsible. Margaret, thanks very much. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's show, and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>